G'day. Uh, welcome to Lunch Muddy, uh, your online and social media home for special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. Uh, I appreciate it's not lunchtime, it's actually uh, past your dinner time, um, but uh, you'll soon find out why, uh, why we're, we're broadcasting at this time. Um, look, I'm a fund manager. I started this uh, Hermes Fund uh, nearly 14 years ago, and I want to give you a 90-second snapshot of how you start a finance business. Now, there's a little bit of technical stuff here, so bear with me. Um, you start off, uh, you need to work out where or on the risk curve you want to be. And for people listening on the podcast, I've got a graph here. There's a line that rises to the right. So the more risk you take, um, the more uh, you get return is. So more price, higher interest rates, more risk. Um, now, you need then to work out where you want to be. If you're, if you're taking on a certain level of risk but not charging enough for it, well, you're going to sell a lot of loans. They're going to be underpriced loans. There'll be a lot of demand, uh, but eventually that'll come to fruition on your book because you've got too much risk for your pricing. Uh, if, you, um, if you price yourself uh, above the risk return curve, you're not going to write any loans because people who are at a, a certain point along the, the risk axis uh, can easily borrow money cheaper than what you're offering. Um, now, of course, if your money is not just a commodity and you're adding a lot of value, uh, you might be able to get away with that. There's no doubt about that. You can be above the yield curve if you're adding a certain amount of value beyond the commodity price. But if that's not the case, you need to do something else. If you're not going to be providing value at above the commodity price of money, you either need to get yourself back on the yield curve uh, or you have to turn your fund into a Ponzi scheme uh, or you have to lie to your investors and face the consequences down the track. Now, that's just apropos of nothing. I'm now going to uh, change topics. Today, we're looking at the rise and fall of Greensill Capital. Uh, Greensill was a pioneering supply chain finance firm and at one time very successful. It, it sort of came out around the time of the uh, GFC. Uh, its founder was Lex Greensill. Greensill rose so rapidly that the first time I heard of it, uh, you know, in sort of around 2015-16, uh, Lex Greensill was already a billionaire. Uh, here are some of the headlines from uh, the good times. Uh, unlikely way three Bundaberg farmers made $1.2 billion. There's a picture of Lex Greensill uh, in his, uh, on his farm in Bundaberg wearing high-vis and a hat. Uh, Lex Greensill receives top university award. He was the entrepreneur of the year. He received uh, a commander of the British Empire um, from Prince Charles. That's uh, how pioneering his finance business was and how successful he was considered to be. Um, but as spectacular as the rise of Greensill was, its fall was even more spectacular. And here are some headlines from when things uh, turned very, very sour indeed. Greensill claims hit $4.9 billion. IAG discloses $7 billion in legal claims after Greensill's collapse. This thing was enormous. Greensill legacy rocks global markets. Uh, Australian, e uh, Australian billionaire Lex Greensill beguiled the world's rich and powerful. Um, Telstra and UGL pulled out of their arrangements, of course. Greensill traded whilst insolvent, say liquidators. ATO takes a close look at Greensill. Um, it just went from, uh, from bad to worse. Well, all of this was captured in a wonderful book called Pyramid of Lies that I've just finished reading. Um, the author of that book is Duncan Maven. I reached out to Duncan and he's very generously agreed uh, to come on Lunch Money. 
Duncan is a senior assignment editor and columnist for the Washington Post in London, focusing on global business and economics. Duncan spent a decade as a chartered accountant in the city of Toronto. Uh, so for accountants, there's hope for you yet. Uh, he became a financial reporter and foreign correspondent. Uh, he's been a reporter and editor for uh, the Wall Street Journal based in Hong Kong and London. His writing also appeared in Barron's Financial News and Bloomberg. Um, he lives with his wife and three sons in the UK and is a long-suffering fan of Sunderland Football Club. And I'm very pleased to say he is here with us right now. Welcome, Duncan. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And, and what did you think of my little risk risk analysis there in terms of... Um... Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting. I think... Um... Yeah, it's, it seems pretty basic, but it's probably a tool that a lot of people should use. Uh, a lot of people should be thinking about loans that way. Um, it's very relevant to Greensill Capital, I think, because, you know, one of the things that I heard over and over again about Greensill was, you know, look at the returns, these steady returns that are happening. And you kind of you know, look at the loans and go, but they, you know, that's the problem. They, they shouldn't be happening. Well, well, I've got to tell you what, what happens in, in finance, certainly in Australia, and I've got no doubt everywhere, is people like me, uh, they decide they're going to set up a fund. They go to investors and they say, listen, I've got this great idea. We're going to make above normal returns and there's going to be less risk. So you're going to be, there's going to be no risk. You're going to be making above normal returns. Give me all your money. And then, of course, what happens is they raise money. If they're lucky enough, they raise the money. And then there's no deals because you can't write deals that you can't you can't get the returns if you're taking a low risk profile. So then you've either got to start writing, you know, taking on more risk, or or something's got to give. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, actually. So I, I think in the case of Greensill Capital, that's a really good way of looking at it. You know, it's exactly what the promise was: low risk, uh, above normal returns. Uh, and then I think the you know one way there are many different ways to kind of slice and dice what went wrong at Greensill, but one way of looking at it I think is exactly as you said. So there are not enough uh, they can't source source loans at the prices they they, they want, and so um, it, it all goes wrong, right? It's uh, they, they have to source loans that are different to the ones they've told the investors are going to get. Um, it, it's interesting uh, because. I think what we're seeing now in the property market, when interest rates were very low, you know, during COVID and before COVID, everybody's become a lender. You know, um, you know, I started, you know, 14 years ago, but it, it, there's just lenders everywhere now. Um, and, you know, they, they set up these property funds, for example, because you can't lose money on property, you know, impossible. But of course, you can get these fabulous returns. But I, I think there's going to be a wave of problems in that sector for exactly the same reasons. Yeah. I mean, another way, another way of looking at it that an investor similar to yourself had told me about when I first started looking at Greensill was uh, along comes this guy saying, you know, I can give you slightly better than a money market fund. And all you've got to do is read this 200 page document that tells you how I'm doing it. And this guy said, you know, straight away, there's the red flag. I'm not reading 200 pages to get slightly better returns than a money market fund. Um, I'm not I'm not putting my money in. How can it be that complicated? Um, and, you know, he was right. It's interesting, though, you say that because, you know, I know from my own experience with our fund, I mean, we've been running our fund for 14 years and it's, you know, we've run a successful fund. You know, COVID was, a, was, was not a fun time in my business. Um, but, but nonetheless, what I found was for the first five years 
no one would give us any money. But then we, five years seemed to be a magical point where all of a sudden everybody wanted to give us money. But it, but now we never dealt with institutions. We were only dealing with high net worths and yeah. maybe you could call some some sort of low-end family offices, I suppose. Um, but it, it did surprise me how often people wouldn't read stuff. And, you know, yeah. if luckily it was me, right? But they wouldn't, they would just hand over the money um, yeah. and, and they put in more and more. Well, that's also true, I think. So, I mean, that happens over and over and again, again with green cell, um, not just in the funds that are invested in sort of green cell sourced loans, but also into green cell itself, right? So um, there's a bit in the book where I talk about SoftBank putting their money into green cell. And, uh, you know, I've seen their due diligence reports. I know exactly what they did. They spent eight weeks from start to finish, their entire due diligence, they put $800 million in. You know, eight weeks to decide I'm putting $800 million in uh, is just staggering. And I think if you speak to people there, I mean, in, the, in the end, by the way, they put a lot more than that in, a couple of billion dollars probably they end up losing. But um, in the end, I think what they did was they're following others, right? So they, they, right. they see that another big investor's already gone in, and so they just kind of, well, they probably did their work. And so now I'm in, and I think that's possibly what you're talking about a little bit, right? Is that once there's a sort of level of credibility or perceived credibility, then, you know, investors tend to, like their guard comes down a little bit. And so they don't ask the questions. They don't read the documents. They just kind of trust the guy that they've given the money to is a good guy. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's a little bit like, you know, we're, we're sort of in the small and medium-sized business space. So, you know, someone says, oh, well, Macquarie Bank's loaned the money. They must be okay. You know, Macquarie Bank would have done their homework. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I've just finished reading uh, Guy Han's book, okay. um, The Dealmakers. Great book. Uh, and, uh, you know, he talks about the level of due diligence that, that uh, he did with uh, Numura. I mean, it was incredible. And they will buying, uh, you know, chains of retailers. I went to every single store. Um, okay, well, look, um, so you're an accountant. You know, you've got an accountant background. So, you know, for you to get your head around this stuff uh, wasn't necessarily ter- terribly challenging for, for, for you personally. Um, but but there was, it was, you know, to the lay person, this stuff was very complex. Um, so, you know, as an author, as a writer, I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, your, your target audience isn't just the people on Wall Street who, who uh, deal with uh, derivatives and, and fancy uh, finance products. So you're looking for, you know, for, 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 for more people to, to be engaged in your book. Um, how, do you, how do you make this sort of stuff accessible to readers? Uh, you know, I, I saw the movie The Big Short, which is a great movie, and, and they have scenes like you've got uh, Margot Robbie in a, in a bubble bath. Yeah. Uh, dumbing down some of the financial concepts. Uh, I didn't. I didn't incur uh, Margot Robbie in your book. Um, so, so what? What? How do you sort of take on that challenge? Yeah, it's definitely. It, you're right. It is challenging. I think at the heart of what Green Cell does is it's fairly straightforward, but it's it's sort of deliberately layered with complexity. You know, it, it deliberate. Lex is a a lawyer by training. You know, he's a finance guy. He's deliberately layered layer upon layer upon layer of complexity and offshore funds and things like that but at the heart of it it's it's fairly simple so i think what you have to do is kind of try and unpeel those layers a bit uh try and sort of say let's we don't there are bits of this you don't need to know to fully understand it so let's concentrate on the bits you do know um but then i think the other thing that makes something like green cell an interesting story for me is that the personalities right it's it's actually all about the personalities. And Lex is just a fascinating guy because he you know, comes from Bundaberg, comes from a farming background, kind of reinvents himself as this you know, 
establishment guy who's like connected to you know, pretty much the royalty and certainly British political royalty. And, you know, that in and of itself is just an amazing trajectory. Um, to get from where he was to where, where, where he got to is kind of incredible. Yeah, I mean, look, I guess there's the old saying, you are who you, are who you say you are. You know, I don't know if you've heard that one, um, but, you know, if you've got the bravado to pull it off, but it, but it was incredible. I'll tell you what, I, I spoke, you know, I do know some people in the finance industry in Australia who used to work for Greensill. Mm. And um, and I, I, I actually, I approached a few of them to ask them uh, what, what questions um, I should put to you, you know. And one of them, uh, one one of them was uh, he was kind of almost uh, offended actually by your book um, because uh, he you know obviously the, the and, and for me it was like the charm of this man must have been incredible that in spite of everything we've seen um, you know he still obviously kept a lot of people in his thrall. Yeah, I think that's right. He, he's definitely. Look, he's a really divisive guy, right? So I, when I first heard about them, start asking, you know, it's basically this company comes out of nowhere, suddenly massive multi-billion dollar company involved in a scandal at a fund manager in the UK. This is a few years ago, a company called GAM, uh, an asset manager. And so I, I knew a little bit about GAM, but I'd never heard of Greensill. So I just started asking around, who, you know, who is this guy? What's going on? And um, it, it's pretty clear straight away that, you know, Four out of five people you speak to say, "Ah, oh, don't touch the guy with the barge pole." You know, wow. he, it, there's some real problems here. But the fifth guy you speak to, oh no, this guy's a genius. He's going to change the world. You know, everybody who works for him is going to be a billionaire. I mean, it's it's incredible, right? So, I don't know, like, why some people fall for it and some people don't. I can't tell, tell you that. But certainly, he's a sort of charismatic sales guy. Um, definitely somebody who presents himself as a kind of visionary. And so once you've fallen behind that, I guess it's pretty hard to maybe admit you're wrong. You know, I, I think it's, I think I can categorically say people like right. the guy you spoke to are in the wrong at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's probably really hard to acknowledge that, right? To admit, yeah, I was wrong for a bunch of years and I thought this guy was going to be a genius, but turns out he's not. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know that he's not a genius. Um, I, you know, like he's a very smart guy. Um, yeah. You know, maybe he's, that's that's fair. He's there is a certain level of genius in what he achieved. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, my, my, my next question is, you know, I, I've been in this game, in the finance game for, 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 for 40 years, believe it or not. Um, and you know, I, I remember when you start in finance, you know, you, you, you know, the boss calls you into the office and I, I had this boss years ago and he used to love telling the stories, you know, and there'd be the great legendary frauds. Now, there was one tonal, which was a, a muffler supplier or something. And, you know, all the finance companies moved in at night and repossessed the equipment, but everybody owned the same equipment. It was a massive fraud. And, and you'd hear, you know, you, you'd hear these stories time and again, and then you'd think this will never happen again. You know, everybody's wise to this stuff. But mm -hmm. then a couple of years later, there's another one, uh, National Safety Council. You know, same thing. This guy was, you know, he was flying financiers around to so they could see their assets. There, there were trucks and this sort of thing. And then he would be entertaining them, and then he'd be moving the trucks to another location while, you know, while they're having lunch or something. And then he'd fly them again. Uh, it, it was just incredible. So, you know, and there was another one more recently, a chap, I think his name was Bill Pappas. Um, 
and he he made off with five or six hundred million dollars. He's gone to Greece. I don't think they'll ever get him again. Yeah. Um, and you think, well, how did they do that? Like, didn't these guys hear the story about Tonal? I mean, how do they keep? When will this end? You know, what? Why? Yeah. Why did Lex happen? Have yeah. people heard the stories? I know. I it is it is uh, kind of amazing. It keeps happening over and over and over again, as you say. I I don't know. Like, is you know the the question? One question for me is. You know, does Lex start out knowing he's going to do something wrong, or does he start out planning to do something, you know, the right way, and like incrementally things start to go wrong, and he ends up in a bad place? And I think to you know, I I'd like to believe it's the the latter that he starts out with this idea that he thinks is a good business idea. He's kind of sort of put it together with bits of other people's ideas starts out in a, in a place where he thinks, well, it's a good idea and can make some money. Turns out he kind of can't make money that way. So he incrementally changes it until, you know, he's miles away from where the starting point was. Now that doesn't, I'm not absolving him of any kind of criticism or blame because I think, you know, some people, you or I might say, hang on a minute, this isn't the plan and it's gone wrong. And so we better stop. And some people just keep digging. Um, you know, thinking they can get out, get out of the problem. And I think that's, you know, maybe Lex's personality flaw is so much self-belief that when things start to go wrong, rather than sort of say, hey, you know, I've made a bunch of loans here that aren't good. He says, I've made a bunch of loans here. They're not good right now. I'll recover them if I can just grow this business, you know, bigger. I'll, I'll sort myself out. Um, well, well, it is it is almost like a Greek tragedy to some extent. Um, you know, you, 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 he's in... Almost, I don't know, it reminds me of a film noir. You know, you, you, gets, you get charmed by the girl, the next thing you've murdered a husband and you're on the run. You know, and then you've got to do bigger and bigger things to sort of, or, or, or another metaphor is, um, is when you're at the racetrack and you've got to get out, you've got to get your money back on the last race in Brisbane. You know, it's just escalating the bets. I just couldn't believe reading your book how he went from one financier to the next to the next, you know, SoftBank and, and then, you know, and Credit Suisse and, uh, and really, uh, in the end, I mean, it was one bailing out the other in reality, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the moon, the money just keeps shifting from one place to the next, and so essentially, Credit Suisse. You know what happens at GAM is the first time it really goes wrong in a big way. Um, you know, and he uh, and GAM has to close down its funds. This is like ten billion dollar fund has to close down, and essentially he gets Credit Suisse to buy out the worst stuff. Um, he just moves it into Credit Suisse. So, you know, GAM gets to say, hey, you know, we, we, we fixed this. We solved our problem. We, we you know, cleared out the fund. But what, what nobody really knows is that it's just been shoveled off to another guy. It's just another bigger bank that's taken on, on the problems. Um, but, but again, you know, I remember, again, when I was a lad, you know, uh, one of my first managers, you know, pulled me into the office and told me that he, he, t- he told me the terminology finding a victim. And it's, you know, it's where, you know, one bank offloads its problem to another bank. I mean, this is, we're talking about, you know, $200,000 loans here. We're not talking high finance. You know, yeah. we're talking street level uh, credit. And, and, you know, you've always got to be on the lookout for, for if the, the previous financiers finding a victim. But, yeah. but are, these, are, the, are these subsequent financiers thinking that, you know, it, it, that this isn't what's happening. I mean, yeah, well, I think back to your point about interest rates and, you know, how to make a return. I think what happens at Credit Suisse actually is it kind of, you know, there's a door opens and he goes in and there's a couple of kind of, you know, maybe fairly low level fund managers who see this as like a low risk, 
you know, high return way to build a portfolio, which means their management fees go up, which means their bonuses go up. And so they just sort of, they're in. And once they're in, you know, like you're, you, the guy you talk to, again, it's like hard to admit you're wrong. And so at what point, you know, I, I, I went to Credit Suisse and I told them, look, you've got a bunch of loans here that are to Lex's neighbor and to, you know, the cousin of his, one of his top guys. And, you know, these are not, these are not loans that Credit Suisse ought to be making with other people's money. And um, their response was sort of like, a, yeah, but look at the returns. Look, the returns are steady. And my point was, well, they always will be so long as the money keeps coming into the fund because Lex is telling me that he's, you know, he's never having to acknowledge that these loans aren't being repaid. And so it was kind of staggering to me that the portfolio managers don't understand that. But I think the reality is they don't want to understand it because, you know, to acknowledge it is to sort of close down the fund, right? It's once you're in, well, it's get out yeah I, I guess to some extent you know the last the last real recession certainly in australia was was you know 89 90 like we the, in australia anyway the, the you know the gfc it was bad but it wasn't the wipeout that, that it was so so you got generations almost of people who've never really seen bad times um and it really and you're right i mean it, it really you know you call the pyramid of lies um you know, you've got the, the the salesperson that Lex is pitching to. They they want to make their bonus, and everybody. I guess it's a convenient sort of story for everybody up the chain, isn't it? I think so. Nobody wants to rock the boat while the money's flowing <laughs> in and everybody's making a return. Who wants to say actually at the bottom of this is a bunch of bad loans? And you know, because that once you say it out loud, it's kind of over yeah. for everybody, right? And yeah. in the end, what happens really? The, the trigger for it happening is that there was a bunch of insurance was supposed to sort of provide cover for these loans. In the end, it's really because an outsider, you know, the insurance company says, we're not going to insure these things anymore. And so they all have to acknowledge that there's a bunch of loans that right. can't be repaid. In right. So they're the little boy at the back of the crowd saying the emperor's got no clients. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Exactly. Um, so now one of the um, things that we've touched on it, but, um, you know, he had this ambitious pursuit of fitting in with high society. Um, you know, he named the fund after himself. I suppose that's not unique, but I guess it's a portent of things to come. I mean, he had incredible personal drive. There's, there's no, um, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, do you, do you? You know, have you seen this elsewhere? I mean, is this is this just um, human nature, or, 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 or you know, he he seemed to have it just in extraordinary quantities. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely an incredibly hardworking guy, right? Even by the sort of standards of uh, investment banking and, and that kind of world, he's a, he's incredibly hardworking. Um, he definitely has, you know, the ability to kind of pull. Like he talks really well. He's a great salesman. You know, he's got that ability to say things that kind of you know, you ask him a question, it's challenging, and he says something else, and you think, did that answer my question? Or, you know, right, somehow right, we just right, shifted right. somewhere else, and I'm not sure if I got an answer there or not. So he's really yeah. good at, at that sort of stuff. Um, the, the sort of, the, you know, the ingratiating himself with the kind of high society, you know, I think that is a really interesting element because to some degree he does that because that's how you get money. Right. So like right. having the private jets is not because you're having a fleet. He's got a fleet of private jets. Right. You know, more, uh, like Goldman Sachs has one. He's got a bunch of them. Um, yeah. So having those is not, I think, about, you know, 
luxury. It's not about kind of like, look how great I am. It's actually about sending a signal to investors that I am the real deal. It's it's yeah. a it's about building a kind of credible scenario of who I am. So I think well, yeah, collecting. Well, it's like it's like you are who you say you are. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. if You say you're a guy with corporate jets flying around the world in you know five thousand dollar suits. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Then then um, then people believe it and they start to give you money because you know why wouldn't you give that guy money? He's really successful. Look at his private jet collection. Look, uh, you know, I mean, and, and the thing is, he seems to parlay one relationship into the next and sort of, you know, just, just goes up and up and up. Now, you know, and we had Julie Bishop, who was a minister um, in the Australian government here, and, and you mentioned her in your book. The other obvious one is, is David Cameron. I mean, the fact that he, he had a business card for number 10 Downing Street, it's, yeah. it reminds me of the movie Zelig. I don't know if you ever saw that Woody Allen movie Zelig. I mean, he was just everywhere. Um it is quite extraordinary. And, you know, we've had this recent controversy in Australia with Qatar Airlines. You know, the, 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 the government's not letting Qatar Airlines take extra spots. And, you know, it's absolutely unrelated that, and it's not just one party or the other, you know, the, 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 the you know, people in government, they give, you know, Aquinas gives them and their families members uh, access to the, to the chairman's lounge, which is all very nice. And I'm sure that's got nothing, no influence whatsoever. Um, but but he did get uh, David Cameron in. I mean, how do you think that that um, you know get, getting that you know getting David Cameron in? Uh, yeah. I mean, was that was that like an inflection point? I think it's it's really important for him actually. I mean, it's it's a it's a bizarre sort of you know series of circumstances that lead to him get Lex getting into Downing Street. Uh, essentially, post financial crisis, the UK government puts out a commissions a report to look at ways to save money. And one of the things this report says is, uh, you know, we might look at supply chain finance. That that could save us some money. And Lex is kind of an expert on supply chain finance. And there's a um, senior civil servant who he knows from his time at Morgan Stanley who says, why don't we invite Lex in to talk about this? And Lex kind of being Lex, he kind of turns that into a, as you said, a number 10 down the street business card. And, you know, he's hosting meetings in, in 10 down the street. There's a lot of kind of, civil servants who are looking around going, who is this guy? What, what is he doing here? But Lex doesn't carry so thick skinned, he just keeps going. And so, you know, he gets to know David Cameron and so on. Uh, when Cameron then leaves office, you know, this is, this is kind of classic Lex smarts. He offers him a job. I think Cameron, why does he take it? Um, you know, that's interesting because I think like all prime ministers, all ex senior politicians take jobs in, uh, private companies when they leave or public companies when they leave. But, um, you know, I guess I would think the only thing you've got to sell as a former prime minister is your credibility. That's why people want to hire you. Um, so you would want to be really careful about the companies you lend that credibility to or you sell it to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's he's kind of been a bit careless with his. And actually, I know some other senior politicians, really experienced senior politicians, spoke to Cameron and said, don't do it. Green cells, you know, a lot of problems, a lot of noise around green cell, don't do it. And he went ahead and did it. And I think the reasons for that are, uh, one, it was kind of cool. Cameron always likes to be a bit cooler than the crowd. So you know, he's not going to work at BlackRock or JP Morgan. He's going to work at a fintech in theory. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's, I think also the money on offer is just like exponentially or potentially exponentially higher, right? So you, know, yeah. you can earn, as an ex, ex-politician, you could probably earn, pretty good money, maybe a million, million dollars, million pounds a year for 
you know, advising BlackRock, let's say, I'm making up the names, but yeah. um, but at Greensill, if they'd IPO'd, you know, he had potentially had stock that was going to be 60, 70 million pounds. So the money on offer is like jackpot money. Um, so I think that, you know, those are the two reasons. It's cool and it's, uh, you know, a lot of money. The third that I've heard from many people is Cameron's not known for his work ethic and right. sort of going to a fintech once a month to the board meetings is relatively straightforward. Well, we, we could go down a rabbit warren and ask what is a fintech, and well, I yeah. know you, you know, I know you touch on that. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of financiers, certainly in Australia, characterise themselves in recent years as fintechs uh, because it's cool and uh, they, they they get in, you know it, it sort of I guess adds a few figures to the multiple of the of the value of your business because you're a fintech. But you know, I mean, just because you've got a computer in the back office doesn't necessarily yeah. make, make you uh, make you a fintech. Um, and I think it's interesting, actually, because I think that's kind of critical as well to Greensill, right? So I think he sees that fintechs get massive valuations, and so he wants to be called a fintech, um, when the reality is that pe- most of the people there are using Excel spreadsheets. There's nothing techie about it. All the tech yeah. is outsourced to somebody else. There's nothing. It's, it's a, it, you know, it's just a small loans company, really. Um, yeah. And... Uh, but he realizes that, yeah, you know, four or five years ago, especially, uh, fintech valuations are going through the roof. So I want to be one, you know, why wouldn't you want to be one? Yeah. And look, it's sort of, uh, you know, everybody's, it's like everybody's kidding, kidding each other to, to some yeah. extent. And he did, he did make big use of the, those relationship with, with David Cameron. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's one, um, one, one scene you paint uh, very vividly uh, when they're in the desert, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah. I can't remember who. Was, was, uh, what's his name? Yeah. The three initials. Yeah, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So the leader yeah. of Saudi Arabia. So yeah, yeah, he uses. I mean, that's Cameron's main sort of. You know, the 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 main thing he brings to Greensill is he's a door opener, right? So he yeah. he goes to the meeting with SoftBank where they secure the money from SoftBank. He's introducing uh, Lex to all sorts of political leaders around the world. Um, yeah, that was a I, I, that photo. There's this photo of Cameron and Lex sitting in the desert, and uh, uh, a source of mine sent it to me. And we were when I was at the Wall Street Journal, we were really kind of cautious about using it because right. you know the main thing the main thing we were worried about was um, normally we can't print photos unless we know the copyright. Right. We're worried right. that somebody's going to come and say, "Can you you know hang on a minute? That's my photo. You owe me for right. it." Right. Right. In right. this case. Right. Sort of knew where it was coming from, and that person wouldn't come and ask us for the money. So, right, um, right. The, the problem with that was then we could we couldn't own the photo either. So everybody's got that photo now. As soon as we published it, wow, everybody wow, else wow. published it. But, um, but you, now there was also there's a part in your book where you know he's uh, Greensill's just leaning on Cameron to make one phone call after the other after to, to, to really just to, to to get bailed out. One one of the little things that intrigued me a little bit was. The deal with the pharmacies in the UK, um, like that, I just couldn't understand what the economic benefit there was. I mean, if the government wanted the pharmacies to have better cash flow, couldn't they just pay them sooner? Yeah, that's, well, you're dead right. So in the end, there was an audit done. This is this is the deal where uh, essentially a bunch of you know UK pharmacies are going to be using Greensill as a supply chain finance business. So Greensill is going to pay their um, 
is going to fund their their supplier transactions. And in theory, the reason for doing it would be that it saves the, the pharmacies, the government some money. In reality, there's an audit done uh, that shows it didn't save them anything. There's no no benefit. Um, you know, what, what's good for Lex, though, in a deal like that, right, again, is about building credibility, right? So he gets to say, I am, I do finance work for the UK government or for the National yeah. Health Service. And he does deals like that over and over and over again, right, where there isn't really any economic benefit, even to him. But it gets a big brand name, you know, on his website and means that uh, he's building credibility. Well, ditto, ditto the the payroll thing, you know. Um, well, I can't think of the name of that that product, but yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of uh, free up as one. It's essentially a you're sort of saying I'll pay. The theory of it is, um, you know, we all when we work for a salary, we get paid at the end of two weeks or the end of a month, and yeah. so we're sort of lending credit to our employers, and so yeah. you know, the, this idea is. These companies will provide the money up front to the employees and get it back later from the employers. And Lex was going to do that for nothing. He, t- he told yeah. me I'm going to do that for nothing. He, he put, I said to him, Lex, I, you know, this is like a real conversation we had. I said, I don't understand why you would do it for nothing, though, Lex. Like, I, I can't understand why you would have a business that doesn't make any money. And, he's, and he kind of looked at me and in a very Lex Greensill way was like, you, you just can't understand that I would do something because it's a good thing to do. no not really i I can't you're a businessman why would you that's just not what's happening here well yeah i mean did the investors give him the money to give it away for free yeah exactly it's not i mean that's part of it right is actually it's not even really your money right it's you're doing this with other people's money if he he wants to be a philanthropist on the side that's great but you know he's, he's all of this is other people's money that's kind of critical as well i think um now, part of part of the um, part of the big story with Lex was that this thing about he was democratizing finance, um, you know, which which he made he made that sound like a crusade, you know. He he told the story of uh, you know when he was on the farm and the big guys, you know, screwing the farmers. And uh, I mean, it's funny. You know, when you talk about the photo of him, you know, sitting in the desert. Um, you know, I, I think when like on the front page of the Financial Review, there'd be Lex wearing the high vis farm gear and the hat i mean I, I put that it's all it's all part of the mythology isn't it um, yeah i think so i think so i mean he he's very uh readily would trot out that story about growing up on the farm and his parents couldn't get paid on time the the, the grocery stores would pay pay them too late and you know and this was what was driving him to you know fix this problem of uh of, of suppliers not or suppliers not getting paid on time um, but I think you're right. It's all part of the mythology. It's a little bit like, you know, um, some of the stuff you hear coming out of Silicon Valley, right? About like why right. and Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos or, you know, some of the others. Um, I think, you know, in reality, democratizing finance, it's, it's just not really what was happening there, right? At all. I mean, no, yeah. in, in the end, you know, there was a, re- um, a report an investigation right in australia by the the small business ombudsman into supply chain finance and it was very critical of uh a lot of supply chain finance uh programs because they were really bad for small businesses essentially big big buyers were able to say to their small suppliers uh if you get on this program where you get a dis you don't get paid as much then we'll work with you and if you don't get on the program we won't we won't work with you and um 
green cell kind of plays this like cat and mouse dance with the small uh, business ombudsman where they're critical of green cell then green cell will kind of fix the problem that they've been criticized for and then proclaim that you know they're doing the right thing and it's like well you are well only because you've been told to do the right thing because yeah, you were doing yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. Yeah. Um, yeah i mean you got caught that's what went, you know, that, that, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what went wrong. You, you got caught. I mean, um, I kind of liken it to like my kids, you know, when my, my right. kids do something wrong and I the room's a mess and they tidy it up and say, look how tidy my room is. And I said, well, only because yeah. I caught you. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well they're, yeah, they're doing something wrong because they think you're asleep and, uh, you know, you catch them. They go, well, I thought you were asleep. Well, yeah, no, exactly. you, you were doing the wrong thing. The fact that you yeah. thought I was asleep has got nothing to do with it. Um yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, that that at one stage, you know, while he was sort of riding the wave, there were these large companies, and I'm just relating to my own experience in Australia, um, you know, all of a sudden they were getting into uh, supply chain finance. And, in fact, it was impinging on our market. You know, where they were reverse factoring, you know, we're sort of factoring in the other direction. Um, and we certainly, you know, we certainly saw it affecting our business. Um, but then, that, then those large co companies, after that ombudsman investigation, they started pulling out of it. But I think there are still the echoes of it. Where I know, for example, supermarkets that used to religiously pay their suppliers thirty days, you know, they're, they're extending terms to ninety days in some cases, and holding that same gun to the head of the of the suppliers, uh, saying, "Well, yeah, we'll, we'll pay you sooner, but you've just got to give us bigger discounts." So now I know that's always gone on, but some of the some of, I'm just seeing more of it now and i just wonder whether or not it's a legacy of all of that yeah i think i think you're right it's you know there's obviously there's legitimate supply chain finance right like i, I don't yeah. want to knock that as an entire no. industry it's yeah. a legitimate tool for lending to businesses and you know sort of greasing the wheels of business um but i think it has been applied clearly it has been applied in a way that is is not good for small businesses yeah. Um, that's kind of predatory in a way. And um, I think some of that's still going on. I mean, there's there's a sort of a move to make the accounting of it more transparent, certainly in the in, in the US. The accounting rules have, have been tightened up to, so that companies that use supply chain finance have to disclose a little bit more about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. And and it's it the other thing is that the people that are providing the supply chain finance at the level that Greensill was, you know, they're the Citibanks, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, you know, I wouldn't take on Citibank, you know, because I don't have the cost of capital that they do, right? So to compete in that space, particularly if you're going to be providing supply chain finance to, you know, global corporations, you've got to have an extremely low cost of capital. Yeah. Um, now, now Greensill started, you know, he obviously there's a whole relationship with Gupta, and even though it was branded, you know, the packet said supply chain finance, but really most of the business was, uh, you know, corporate finance and it was corporate finance that nobody else was prepared to do. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's so was that the business model was flawed. Yeah, totally. And in a nutshell, so I think you're right. Like the cost of capital issue is really important, right? And he's, uh, he, what he's saying is, I mean, he doesn't even have any balance sheet, right? So he, he's saying, I'm going to get the funding from somebody else. So I'm going to GAM or Credit Suisse and saying, you provide, you you get your clients to give me the money and I'll do this supply chain finance and compete with uh, Citigroup and, and, and others. Um, 
the challenge then is right like how out of this business which has really small margins and city only does it for certain clients how out of those small margins is is are you supposed to pay the investors in the credit suisse fund uh lex green cell credit suisse's fund managers um and you know you've got insurance on top of it because often dealing with sort of lower credit uh, uh, borrowers, you got to pay that as well. So you got to get all of this out, squeeze all of this out of these tiny margins. And yet he somehow was doing this, um, you know, at a lower cost than, than city. Well, the answer to that is because he's doing it at a loss, you know, on the big clients, he's doing it. At a, he is doing supply chain finance, but he's doing it at either zero profit or a loss. And then because that business is not making any money, he's having to do this other business, which is, as you say, corporate finance to borrowers who otherwise wouldn't get the money. Um, yeah. And that's like high risk. That is the opposite of supply chain finance. You know, it's not, yeah. not low risk multi-transactions. It's high risk one-off transactions. Um, and then you sort of jamming them all together in a supply chain finance fund in a way that means the investors, the ultimate end investors, Credit Suisse's clients, think they bought something which is, you know, financing Coca-Cola paying thousands of suppliers for widgets. But in fact, most of the money in those funds is being generated by, you know, loans to Sanjeev Gupta for his purchase of a steel plant or loans to Lex's neighbor to set up a, a school for you know, uh, people with special needs or whatever it is, right. you know, loans to a friend of his who never pays it back, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's there's another small, yeah, there's a small scale one of these uh, in Australia that's that's that, that, that's very interesting. I mean, I, one one of the great things, you know, my in my business, you know, we're a fund where we're we're governed. Well, we we have to report to the Australian Security and Investment Commission, but we're not listed, and we we don't report public data. Um, and so I'm not under pressure. If we're having like COVID was was bad uh, for us because we were competing with the tax office and all of those government support schemes. Um, and so, you know, we just said to our investors, look, you know, thing, things are a little bit lean at the moment. But if I was a public company or a, or a fund that had to keep, you know, they have to keep growing, you know, they have to keep the dividends going, you start chasing those deals. I, I had a friend years ago that had a mortgage fund and they were just doing commercial loans. But then there wasn't, you know, that business, it was, you know, they weren't getting the yields. They, their book was getting, the next thing they're getting into property development, well, you know, which is high risk. Mm. And and they, they went bust. Look, I'm conscious that, that I am running out of time and you've been very generous um, to, to, to make time for us. Um, the so I'm just gonna sort of get to my to my last couple of questions. Um, uh, my first question is is there anything else that you're working on at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually working on a book about um, Credit Suisse at the moment. What happened there? Um, obviously, right. my sort of green cell stuff gave me some insight, and so I'm uh, using that as a kicking off point to look at what happened there. Yeah. Wow. And are you making a few enemies along the way? <laughs> you know, whenever you write about things that are like bad things that happen to people, I guess you make some enemies. But you know, that's not, not the objective. Honestly, it's sort of uh, I'm I'm um, you know, as I say, I was a chartered accountant. I worked in finance. I'm a financial journalist. I'm kind of, you know, really interested in the truth, really interested in why things go wrong. Like, you know, let's, you know, I, I don't think we're, as you said, the, these things keep happening over and over and over again. So I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where you kind of solve them. But maybe by shining a light on problems, you can sort of help people avoid them, you know, those who want to well, avoid. 
and they're all very human stories at the end of the day as well. Mm. I mean, this one in particular, the Greensill story. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure where you, you know, I'd be interested to, to see what happens with, uh, with, with Credit Suisse. But it, 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 you know, there's, as I say, all the elements of Greek tragedy um, uh, are yeah. there, and these are these are you know problems with the human condition going back thousands of years. Um, we've seen The Big Short. There's been you know that was a great movie. There was Boiler Room, Wall Street, Wolf, uh, Wall Street, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, if Pyramid of Lies was made into the into a movie, who's going to play Lex Greenson? That's a really good question. I mean, I, uh, you know, so I, I really think it would be a great musical. You know, they made a musical out of Enron. I'd kind of love to see it be made into a musical. I think the, the sort of absurdity of certain elements of it would, would really feature well. So, you know, just thinking of where you guys are, maybe Hugh Jackman would be a good, uh, he'd have the charisma, wow. he can sing, right? And uh, yeah. he'd pull it yeah. off. Lex would yeah. probably yeah. like that as well, by the way. Oh, I, I bet he would. And what about, and who's playing Duncan Marvin? Uh, well, that's a much tougher question. Uh, and at one I'm not super comfortable with. I was thinking about this, uh, you know, once I've been thinking about uh, whether whether this is going to make it onto screen or something. But um, maybe somebody more like a Gary Oldman, you know, cynical. Somebody can uh, sort right. of portray a slightly cynical uh, uh, mood. Wow. I mean, you've, you've shot high there. I mean, uh, he was uh, Winston Churchill, wasn't he? And, yeah. uh, and, and, and of course... Um, uh, Commissioner Gordon in the Batman in the Batman movie. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that'd be wonderful. All right, listen, uh, I'm really super grateful. I, I am going to ask you one question. I don't know if it's a question for off-air or on-air. Uh, I have had requests for autographed books. So if I, do I send you books? What, how, do, how does that work? Do I, do I buy books and mail them to you? Or, um, well, you know what? I'll, let's do that by email. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll email you and you tell me if, 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 you know, if I get a bunch of your books delivered somewhere in London, uh, we'll, we'll work that out. But, but particularly a couple of the uh, ex-Greensill uh, employees were really, really keen on that. Okay. So, uh, well, I mean, if you want to put me in touch with them directly, I'm still keen yeah. to talk to them. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure some of them are watching this, uh, so I will definitely do that for you. Definitely. All right. All right. Well, uh, Duncan, it's, it's been wonderful, and I'm just knocked out that, uh, that you agreed to do this. So thank you very much, and, and, and yeah, good, good luck with the next one. Thanks. Thanks very much. Okay. Cheers.